And so Rob and Shannon were sort of Sarah's initial one live, so to speak. And then so cool how God brought all these other people into her, into her orb, her relational kind of sphere. How cool that is. How awesome that is. You may say, Pastor Paul, I don't know what to do. Like, what's the next step? You know, it's just something as simple as taking one of these cards, grabbing it and giving it to your coworker, your neighbor, your friend, taking them to church next Sunday, inviting them to, to Easter service. God really uses things just like that. So let's be encouraged and inspired Look forward to a great weekend next week. But for this week, we're in Acts 22 and 23, so turn into your Bibles there. Acts 22, verse 30. Paul Gilbert, that's me. I love a good trial, a good courtroom drama. Do you? You know, the, the literary world was recently abuzz when it came out, news came out that Harper Lee, who first published To Kill a Mockingbird some 55 years ago, that a sequel was coming out to her, to her book entitled Go Set a Watchman. And when we think about, maybe you've never read the book, maybe you've at least seen the movie, and if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, what are you doing? Go home, repent, watch that, read that today. But we are just totally captivated, weren't we, by the courtroom drama in that book. Here's Gregory Peck playing Atticus Finch. He's defending the African-American Tom Robinson, the book set in the 1930s. Tom Robinson's been accused of this heinous crime, and, it, and, it, and what we find out through the course of this trial is there's no way Tom Robinson did this crime, but he's convicted by this white jury anyway, and we're just totally compelled and wrapped up in courtroom drama like that. If you're a millennial that wears plaid, where's Josh and um, you know, Stephen L. Druggie anyway? You undoubtedly, maybe you're not, maybe you're not even a millennial you did this, but, but, but this American life, the um, the NPR podcast that comes out every week did a spinoff called Serial, and it's, you know, and it's all about a real-life courtroom drama um, related to Adnan Saeed, a young um, high schooler who at the time was accused of killing his girlfriend, hey, men, and millions of Americans eagerly awaited 6 a.m. on Monday morning, because that's when the podcast would be posted. Is he guilty? Did he do it? Who knows? Guys, we're, we're, if we're honest, we're all sort of captivated by that sort of courtroom trial drama. Now, I hope you are, because let me tell you, the rest of the book of Acts is all one long series of trials. That's, that, that's what chapter 22 on is, and the apostle Paul is the chief witness. He's the guy in the witness stand. He's the guy in the dock being queried and questioned and poked and prodded and at times attempted to be torn apart by, by crazy mobs. And this is really the beginning of the end, in a way, to our study of the book of Acts. Do you realize, from this point on, we are never confronted with an Apostle Paul who's free? He is in prison the rest of the way through this book, and he's just engaged in this, in this series after series of trials and being in the courtroom and being questioned and queried. Now, What's interesting is that if you've been with us through this study of the book of Acts, you know this is not the first trial. In fact, a lot of other trials are included by Luke in this book. Um, it's, in a lot of ways, it's like watching, if you're, if you're a Netflix person, watching Matlock and Perry Mason and Law and Order back to back to back to back. Now, if you're doing that, you need to get a life, okay? But nonetheless, okay, it's kind of like that in the book of Acts. Because remember, we had Peter and John on trial, 
There was Stephen on trial. Now we have Paul on trial. You know what's interesting about this? These trials are not really about these people. I think Luke includes all these trials to tell us something. They're not really about the people involved. They're really about another person. All the, quest- all the questions, all the trials revolve around who is Jesus? What did he do? Who did he claim to be? That's why we're entitling this message the gospel on trial. And as we're, as we're looking at this trial of Paul's, a couple of questions that kind of keep in our minds as we're reading, and, and, and one is this, what sort of gospel witness are you? And maybe you're like me and you want to say, I'm a terrible one. <laughs> maybe a better question, what sort of gospel witness do you aspire to be? Is being a gospel witness even a category for you? Is it a category for me? When we're walking around in the course of our daily lives, do we see ourselves like the Apostle Paul did? Being a witness. This trial, Paul knows, is not about him. It's not about him. For us, it's not about us. It's about the gospel. Do we, do you locate yourself in this courtroom drama? I think Luke wants to move us from bystander the people who sit around in the balcony and watch the courtroom drama happening to realizing, no, 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 we're a central part. We're a key figure. We, in fact, are witnesses in the dock, in the stand as well, bearing truth to this thing we call the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're in chapter 22, verse 30, and I'm going to say there's three things that Luke wants to show us about what it means to be a bold and faithful gospel witness. Three things. It's a lengthy text. We're just going to break it down into chunks. Luke's going to talk about what it means to have a gospel conscience. He's going to tell us what it means to, to best understand the gospel conflict that we're a part of. Then ultimately, he wants us to rest in God's gospel care as we go through our life as a witness. Where is God in this? What is he doing? So chapter 22, verse 30. Remember, we left off last week. Paul's come to the temple. The Jews tried to kill him. The Romans snatched him from the jaws of death. Paul says, whoa, whoa, before we leave, let me give a speech. So he gave a speech. They tried to kill him again, the Jews did. So finally, the Romans bring him back into the the barracks area. They call in the Sanhedrin, Okay, the Jewish leaders, and they're like, once and for all, let's figure out what is all this commotion about. And that's where we are, verse 30. And we'll have this splash up here on the screen for you. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, that means Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, and that's the Roman centurion, he unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. In looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, try this gospel witnessing technique. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. 
For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, big text, big ideas, and we come to you. If we're all honest, we're all, most of us are probably like, I'm a pretty crummy gospel witness. It's not a category. I don't know. I'm not inspired. I don't think that way. But Lord, you're gracious. You're kind. You're merciful. In fact, it is your kindness that leads us towards repentance. And we're praying that you would give us a heart of faith to receive everything you have for us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, in verse 30, the centurion says, we were going to find out the real reason this is all going on. You've got to understand that religious conflict for Romans was inexplicable. Romans did not argue about religion, and that is why, just like our culture, every religion is affirmed. Just as long as you keep it to yourself, just as long as it's private, just as long as you don't bring that into the public arena and start making crazy claims about this being the only way or the exclusive way, that'll get you into trouble, right? Just like it does in our culture. And it got Paul in trouble. And so he's dragged before this council. And in verse 1, as they ask Paul to, to state his case, it says that he looked intently at the leaders. Vernacular, he bore a hole through their heads. Okay, now parent, all the parents in here, you know the look, right? You know that look? Did you give your kids the look on the way to church this morning? Okay, if you didn't this morning, you certainly have in a nice restaurant, all right, or a wedding, or Target, when your kid is too far away from you to get your hands around his neck, I mean his bottom, okay, you give them the look, right? Paul gives them the look. And we all know the look. Our parents gave it to us. Maybe your teacher gave it to you. You've given it. And then he says this. He said, brothers, I have lived before God my whole life in all good conscience up to this day. Let me tell you something, guys. I'm not backing down an inch. This was a guy with conviction and boldness and clear conscience. Remember, guys, Paul had been accused of heresy. He had, they said he, was lost, he had lost his mind. He was a Jewish traitor. But he's essentially saying, you know what, guys? I'm the true Jew here. I'm the one that properly understands the Old Testament. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. I've got a clear conscience that I am right before God. And guys, there's one thing culturally we know about our culture, okay? That, that, that the great sin is to be confident and sure about anything, okay? Except being confident and sure about nothing, right? So, I mean, we, we, we totally, as a culture... We're fine to be ambivalent, we're fine to be murky, we're fine to keep things private, but when you voice certainty and boldness publicly, you will receive reaction, and that's what happens to Paul here, which leads Paul to, to issue some serious smack talk, right? He calls the high priest a white-washed wall, okay, or in the Greek, a tomb, a sepulcher, a coffin, literally decay that's painted over to hide the rot. Very effective technique on Paul's part. Think about college. You know, at the end of the year, when we had to try to repair all the massive damage that we had inflicted upon our dorm room, right? In order to get our deposit back and have our transcripts cleared and all that. 
And so we were too lazy to get spackling to patch up the holes. So we just decided to use, in all our infinite wisdom, toothpaste, right, to fill in all the holes in the wall, to just a slight veneer to hide all the junk. Jay Townley's laughing because he did it, I'm sure, okay? All of us men have done this, okay? But what's Paul saying? Look, chief priest, you're upholding yourself as the paragon of virtue and the keeper of the law, but look here, you're hitting me. In fact, you're trying to secretly kill me. Those are all violations of the law. This is not about the law. This is about your heart. You were corrupt. This is about your power, your status, your influence. And I can see right through your game. Now, here, here's a question, okay? Just a quick sidebar. Was Paul right or wrong to do this? Was Paul right or wrong to do this? You know, it says in here that they said, Paul, don't denounce the high priests. And Paul seemingly says, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Okay, if I had known it was the high priest, I wouldn't have denounced the high priest. And, and there's probably something to this. Just remember, the gospel writers do not always, I mean, one of the per, per, per compelling truths of Christianity in the Bible, if the Bible is true, is that there is no effort to hide the warts of God's people. Okay? The Apostle Paul sinned many times. We all sin. The Scripture um, characters sin. I mean, we, we, we see this all the time in Galatians 2 and Paul and Peter. And it seems that there was, in some sense, Paul did not recognize the high priest. We don't know why that is. It could be because of Paul's terrible eyesight. We know that his eyesight was, was very poor. We know that from his other letters. We don't know if because this was in a different location than where the, the Jewish trials would usually happen, he didn't recognize the high priest. We don't know if he says this tongue-in-cheek, okay? But, but what we do know is what Paul apologized for and what he didn't apologize for. And this is important, because a lot of times when we aspire to be bold gospel witnesses, we're not going to do it right. We're not going to do it right. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to say things we shouldn't say. We're going to put the accent where it shouldn't be placed. And, and Paul, for his part, says, I shouldn't have said that to the high priest. But, okay, what doesn't he apologize for? The Apostle Paul does not apologize for being bold. He does not apologize for his convictions. The Apostle Paul does not apologize for the truth. And in fact, as we read through the trial of Paul and we go through here, we know that this did not mute Paul one bit. Paul was as bold and as clairvoyant and as powerful as he ever was. And as we think about this, we, we need to understand what empowered Paul to be as bold as he was. And so let me ask you a question. I think, going back to trials here for a second. Who makes the best witness in a trial? Who makes the best witness? And I would maintain it's someone who actually, actually believes they're telling the truth. Okay? That is a very compelling witness. For those of you who were around in the 90s, you, you, you remember the day, don't you? Okay? When you heard that O.J. Simpson was on the loose in the Bronco with Al Cowlings on the Los Angeles freeway. You probably know where you were when that happened. And when that trial unfolded over the next year, that totally captivated. And if you say you did not watch the O.J. Simpson trial, you are lying up in here, okay? Who can forget Cato Kalin? Do you remember Cato Kalin? The parasitic house guest of the juice, right? He was a celebrity in his own right, and he had his own talk show and all that good stuff. But you know what? He was a terrible witness. He was a terrible witness. 
attention-seeking, inconsistent, rambling, sarcastic. In fact, he was so bad, the prosecutor, the DA, Marshall Clark, had to ask permission to treat him as a hostile witness because the guy had no conscience. Okay? Paul is bold because his conscience is clear that he 100% believes every single word that he's saying. Because how is your conscience as it relates to the Christian faith? If we are honest, a lot of us would probably say, you know what, Pastor Paul, one of the reasons I struggle to be bold in my Christian walk is I'm, because I struggle in my Christian walk. I have doubts about my Christian walk. Um, I'm, to be honest, not walking in the truth and light at this point in my life. I really don't see Christ's power being made real in my life. And understand, folks, it's very hard to be bold when you are ambivalent. It's very hard to be bold when you lack clarity in your conscience. This is a really, really important issue. You know, some of you have been tracking the, the situation of Saeed Abedidne, who is a Iranian pastor, American citizen, okay, who lives here, lived here in the U.S. With his, with his family, his wife and children, and he visited Iran, his home country, and was unlawfully imprisoned as an American citizen. And that sparked a campaign over these last two years where his wife has been a very vocal proponent of getting the United States to do something because the United States wasn't doing anything. She would speak at conferences and write and come on television programs and radio programs. An incredible lady, by the way. Just a, just a phenomenal witness. But there was a bunch of people who were praying for her, and people across America were praying for her, that, that God would give her a window of opportunity to go meet with President Obama to, to make her case, to testify for the rightness of her cause. President Obama, please do something. Of course, this was all entangled in the politics of Iran and Israel and all those things, and God gave her that opportunity just a few weeks ago. And she marched in humbly, but with conviction and boldness and pleaded her case. Now, now let me ask you this. What compelled her? What compelled her to be so bold? And I would maintain she had a clear conscience that this is right. This is just. And I'm compelled and motivated by this. And I am convinced, folks, that, that for a lot of us, our boldness is muted because our conscience is not clear. Maybe it's not clear morally. Maybe it's not clear in terms of, of just our own doubts of wrestling with our faith. And guys, I would say if that is you, the, 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 the next step here is not to walk out of here shamed. That, that, that's not where you go with a clear conscience. Jesus gives us a place to go for a clear conscience, and that's to him. And they say, Lord, I'm wrestling. Lord, I'm struggling. Lord, I want to be bold. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this sin that's muted my boldness. Lord, I have doubts. Talk to one of us as pastors or elders or ministry leaders. We love to come alongside of you in that. But make no mistake, having a clear conscience is key to boldness. Now, here is a caution point, okay? Caution point for us. 
as important as a clear conscience is, it does not automatically make us right. See, guys, we live in a culture that says sincerity is the test of whether you're right or wrong. If you're sincere about it, it's okay. You know, Hitler had a clear conscience, did he not? Um, he had a conviction that what he was doing was right. As we have seen many people over the years, even here at Four Oaks, spouses abandon their families because they had a clear conscience, that they were convinced that what they were doing was right. Because that's not biblical, and this is what Paul says about this. Okay, This is important, 1 Corinthians 4, and I think he has situations just like this one in mind. He says this, But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Okay, so, so there's, there it is. Okay, I've got a clear conscience. It doesn't matter what you say. I've got a clear conscience about it, but, but, but he doesn't stop there. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. I have a clear conscience, right? doesn't matter what you say. I have a clear conscience, but listen to this. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is who? The Lord who judges me. And here's what he's saying, Four Oaks. You've got to have a clear conscience to be a bold gospel witness. But you know what? God is the ultimate judge. He is the one who judges our conscience. And the way he does that, and the way that he wants you and I to do that, is through his word. Because we have to have a clear conscience that's informed and grounded in the Word of God. Guys, you know, uh, recently a whole spate of, of movies and books about people who have purportedly died and gone to heaven, right? And so, so one of those recently, the boy who went to heaven, and I got, I said it was heaven is for real, then Stephen reminded me that that was a different thing, okay? There's so many of these, I get them confused, okay? But the boy who went to heaven, Capture the Nation, bestseller, and what is our response to this? Because it's not just non-Christians who gravitate to this stuff, it's, it's Christians, and maybe there's some piece of, about a theology of heaven or a vision that we can grab hold of that's not in the Word of God. But listen to what this boy himself said, and I should have invited him here as guest speaker, but listen to what he says, and we have this up here on the screen. This is six year, eight years later. I did not die, he said, and I did not go to heaven. Alex wrote, he continued, and I'm sure his parents had a clear conscience, right? I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. But when I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. They should read the Bible, was he say, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by a man cannot be infallible. Now, you got to love this kid for this next line. Those who market these materials must be called to repent. Okay, I love, I love that. Okay, and hold that the Bible is enough. Guys, our conscience has to be clear, but a truly biblically clear conscience is one that's tethered to the Word. That's why we have to examine ourselves. That's why Paul says, ultimately, God is this judge. And if it doesn't pass the biblical test, no matter how, what kind of convictions we have in our conscience, we have to toss it. First component of being a bold gospel witness is having a clear biblical conscience. Second thing that's important 
understanding the gospel conflict we're a part of. Acts 23, we're picking up the story in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no, no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, always violence that surrounds Paul, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. Paul is being, I think, very shrewd here, but he's also being very true. And his shrewdness is that he perceives that there is this conflict among the Sanhedrin, the liberals and the conservatives, so to speak, and he incites them. Okay? He, he sort of deflects the attention off of him. But his goal in this is not to deflect his attention off of himself in order to get out. His intention is to deflect the conflict off of himself onto the real issue, okay, which is the message and the truth of what Paul is preaching. So look what he says there. He says, I am here with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. They were familiar with this message, by the way. Paul had been very bold in proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Jewish Messiah died on the cross for sinners, resurrected from the dead. And, and, and let me tell you what particularly was, was threatening about this message for these Jewish leaders. Okay? Because remember, it was the content here that they were responding to. What was particularly threatened? Remember, Paul had done all sorts of things in their mind. He had trampled the food laws. He refused to bow to this idea that circumcision was necessary for inclusion in God's community. But if you really wanted to get to the heart of it, what made their blood boil was every time Paul talked about the Gentiles. We think about what happened right before this and why, the, why they initially wanted to kill him in the first place, Acts 22, I'll flash it up here. And Paul's narrating his testimony here. He says, and God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It's interesting what he says here. He says, up to this word, they had listened to him. So in other words, they were listening to Paul's message. But there was something about this idea of the Jews being included I'm sorry, the Gentiles being included in God's plan of salvation that totally incited them against Paul's message. And, and, and here's what I think it is. Here's what I think it is. Because you know, it, it was okay in the Old Testament for Gentiles to become Jews. That was totally acceptable. Um, they, could come worship and they could come worship God. They could be circumcised. They could be converted. Um, and Jews had no problem with that. But what was incredibly inoffensive to them and incomprehensible was that Paul was saying, you know what? Gentiles can have the same access to God that you Jews do, but apart from the law. No obedience to the law, only by grace. 
And that's what cut to their hearts. Because, you know, in our culture, grace is really offensive. You say, what do you mean? Well, just ask someone if they think a Stalin or a Hitler or a Bundy, or just think about or a Pol Pot, the worst person you can imagine. And ask them if they can imagine a situation where these people would have the opportunity to not only be forgiven, but to receive into the very fellowship and presence of God. What, 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 what do people in our culture say to that? <laughs> Offensive. You've got to be kidding. Derision. And guys, one of the reasons people respond that way is that we know we're not perfect, right? Our culture does. We know we're not perfect. But we always love to maintain our moral superiority over people we think that are worse. And when we confront the gospel of grace, it is the most offensive word that we can ever hear. Because you know what the gospel of grace says? It's not just Hitler and Bundy and Paul and whoever else. Remember, Paul was a murderer that need the grace. It's you. All of us need the gospel of grace. All of us are sin, sinful. All of us are wicked. All of us are conceived quote-unquote, in iniquity. And when we proclaim the gospel message, people respond violently to it because it cuts to the heart of fundamentally who we are. It tells us the truth about ourselves, and that's offensive, and that's what the Jews, I believe, were fundamentally responding to. Now, there's something that I think we can learn about this, folks. Because in our culture, which is becoming increasingly hostile to all things Christian, it's very easy to personalize that. It's very easy to be cowed by that. It's very easy to, 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 to feel that in a very personal way. When, when Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, tells Chick-fil-A to stay out, we don't, we don't want you or your kind or anything you stand for. That feels personal. And what do we do? We go buy us some chicken, right? Okay, in support. Now, go buy chicken. I'm not, you go do that, okay? Absolutely. But let me say this for us. Folks, don't take this personally. I mean, literally. Don't, don't, don't take gospel opposition personally. It's not about you. It's about the truth. And it's about God. We need to remember that people's antagonism towards us as Christians is ultimately rooted in a transaction between themselves and God. And we have to reframe this. And let me tell you why it's so important to reframe gospel conflict from being a personal thing to being a gospel thing. Here, and here's why. And, and, and you've heard us from this pulpit say things like this before. Very, very difficult to love and reach out and engage people you feel are personally attacking you. That's very hard. It's very hard to invite that neighbor with this card or invite that coworker with this card when you feel that person is fundamentally against you. And it may feel like it's against you. And, and, and it may manifest itself in certain ways that impress upon you that this is against me. It's not against you. This is about God. This is about transaction. This is about the gospel of grace. And when we reframe this, 
it allows you to move towards people. It allows you to empathize with them, remembering at one time you too were an enemy of the cross. At one time you too were hostile to God. It, re, it, it allows you, when you reframe the gospel conflict, to move towards people to say, you know what? I'm a sinner, just like you. I need grace, just like you. I'm the worst of sinners. Guys, we've got to reach a point in our hearts where we can say with Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. But by grace and faith in Jesus Christ, I have been saved. Of course, I think to be a bold gospel witness, we have to reframe the gospel conflict. Last thing, and we'll end on this, that I think is important. Folks, I want to call you to rest in God's gospel care. I'll pick it back up in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that's Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. God's promise is being put to the test immediately. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me, asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, either to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Somebody needs to tell Mel Gibson to make a movie about that. Okay, now that is like some, but not in Latin. Okay, but that is some compelling stuff. Because I find this incredibly encouraging, and I'll tell you why. We love to think about Paul as the fearless gospel warrior, right? But guess what? He was a man just like you and me. And he was afraid just like you and me. If someone was about to tear you from limb to limb, I bet you would be afraid, right? How do we know Paul's afraid? Because Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus tell him? <laughs> Don't be afraid. Or essentially, take courage. Now let me ask you a question. Think about fear for a second. And I would maintain that fear is a great gospel inhibitor.
And I would maintain, and there's a lot of things that hide themselves behind fear. So fear of people's reprisal, if I'm too bold. Fear of what that neighbor's going to think about me. Fear of, and it could be a real fear, fear of losing my job. Fear of being ostracized. Fear of, of what others think. There, there could be a hundred different fears. But I would maintain we're the most physically protected culture probably in the history of the world, but one of the most fearful. Isn't that an interesting paradox? But what's the antidote to fear on a human level? Now, forget about spiritual, okay? Just human level, what's the antidote to fear? And look, will you allow me to dip into some 80s pop culture for just a brief moment? Am I allowed to do that, okay? Now, before Will Smith's son was the Karate Kid, okay, there was a real Karate Kid, okay? And his name was Ralph Macchio. And he was being pummeled by all the cool karate kids who ran around in skeleton costumes. Okay, remember those guys? Okay. And so what happened is that Pat Morita, Mr. Miyagi, shows up and does a little wax on, wax off, like takes them down. And then Mr. Miyagi goes in and negotiates a truce with the mean, nasty, bitter sensei. Remember that guy? Okay. And basically... You dudes will not come near the Karate Kid until the appointed time, right? It was a negotiated truce. It was a protection. And then Ralph Macchio proceeds to walk around the school and like taunting these guys and saying these things because he knew they couldn't get near him, right? The great antidote to fear on a human level is what? Protection. Knowing someone has your back. And that's what's going on here in Luke, with Luke in verse 11, where it says this, that Jesus came and stood by Paul. And here's, what he, here's his essential message to Paul. Paul, nothing, nobody is going to take your life outside of when I say they will take your life. I am standing by you. And understand, this is not like in the, in, the, in the Greek term here, it's not geog merely geographic proximity. Okay? It's not merely geographic proximity. We think about this idea of how Jesus stood over the, the killing of Stephen. Remember back in Acts, Acts 7? Jesus is standing with Paul. Jesus is with Paul. Jesus is relationally present with Paul. In essence, he's saying, Paul, I'm not just by your side. I'm over you. I'm covering you. I'm protecting you in all respects. Now, let me ask you, Four Oaks, where in your life are you experiencing fear? Maybe it's fear about your one life, or fear in your job, or fear in your marriage. Let me tell you something. For parents here, there is no greater fear for a parent than the gospel conflict they see that's enveloped their child. Is my child a believer? Are they walking with the Lord? What sort of choices are they making? That can inspire incredible fear. And here's what Paul and Luke want you to know. Jesus is standing with you. He's not on the seashore walking with you, holding your hand. Okay, He's standing over you. He's covering you. He's protecting you. He's fellowshipping with you. And you need to know, and I need to know, nothing right now in your life is happening outside of his care for you. Nothing. Now, we read something like this, and we say, well, I'd be comforted too if I knew the outcome of what's going to happen. 
Guys, Paul doesn't know nothing. All he knows is he's not going to die over the next two years. That's it. Jesus doesn't tell him you won't be hurt. He doesn't tell him you won't be afflicted. He doesn't tell him he'll be understood or he'll be in great health. And in fact, we're going to read the rest of Acts, and you know this is true. Paul's in a shipwreck, stranded on a desert island. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that fear will always grip our hearts as a gospel witness until you are 100% convinced, clear conscience before him, Jesus is standing with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I believe Paul believed that. Because when we go to the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul is about to be headed. He's about to die, and here's what he says. Same language, ready? All have deserted me, but what? The Lord stood by me. Get that? The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And Paul's insinuation is clear, and he's still standing beside me all the way to glory. Because here's the real lesson. In your fear, Jesus is telling you that he's given you everything you need. And everything you need can be wrapped up in one thing, and that's him. It's him. He is the one thing. In your fear and in my fear, we may think we need affirmation. We may need encouragement. And God brings that to us graciously. We need results. We need certainty. We, 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 need, um, we need a clear path. And, and, and all Jesus says is, Paul, you're going to live till you get to Rome. And what happens there is up to me. Jesus says, I'm standing with you. And the rest of this chapter is just a confirmation of what he has said. We don't have time to get into all the details. It's so much intrigue. But just know this. Jesus cares for Paul through his providential workings. It's just full of intrigue. We don't know if Paul's nephew was on the inside or if they even knew this was Paul's nephew. It's it, I mean, it, amazing that Paul is, he's the prisoner, but he has 400 Roman centurion guards around him. Think about that for a second. And I think Luke is just using all this to remind us of something. That, that, that this is a picture, it's a metaphor. These Roman soldiers are, are a picture of God going forth, not just protecting Paul, but going forth with the gospel itself. The gospel is marching on. The good news is going to Caesarea. And then from Caesarea, it's going to go to Rome. And when we think about that in our life and the gospel marching forward, just know this, folks. A lot of times we ask for miracles and God gets those from time to time. Miracles are something that happens outside the created natural order. But most often what God gives us is his providential presence. He just works through the mundane details of our lives. And we look at the way this whole situation unfolds with the revealing of the plot and Paul being rescued and taken to the house of Herod. And we don't hear the word of God in there anyway. We, we never see God's direct intervention, but guess what? He's working, 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 working. Jesus said for Oaks that he's standing beside you, and he's working the details providentially for his good purposes and to make you more like him. Where do you see, or do you need to see, God's providential hand in your life? Folks, we 
have a great opportunity as a church family this season to be the gospel witnesses that our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members so desperately need. We have to have a clear conscience. We have to reframe the gospel conflict, and then we have to know God is taking care of us. Do any of us get that? If you don't, that's why we're here. We all need Jesus. We need Jesus to give us heart, to give us grace, to give us mercy. Let's go before him and ask him to do that in us. Lord, we want to be gospel witnesses, but we confess on all of these points, we are